So let's talk about that for a second. The problem with interpreting everything as literal, completely literal, would be that we miss out on deep truths. A lot of times in scripture, we're going to see a biblical author communicate a point through metaphor, and it's going to be a deep, profound point that, that the author is using an illustration of sorts uh, or illustrative language to communicate, and if we interpret it literally, it causes an interpretive issue. So you see some statements up there. I can say, I like to ride my bike, and if you interpret that as literal, you're probably doing all right. But that makes sense. Grant likes to ride his bike. That's a pretty straightforward statement. That's going to be okay. You're going to be all good if you interpret that as literal. Again, I find it relatively easy to ride my bike. How would you interpret that, literal or metaphorical? If you go ahead and interpret that as literal, it still makes a good amount of sense, right? But then if I throw a figure of speech in there, which we use all the time, no one ever speaks in all literal statements. We use a lot of literal statements, but people, even today, communicate using figures of speech and metaphor or an idiom like I use here. I say, riding my bike is a piece of cake. What am I trying to communicate when I say, riding my bike is a piece of cake? That it's, it's easy, but if I interpret it as literal, you're going to come up with some sort of image like that, and that's probably not what I'm, I'm talking about. Um, so a biblical example of this would be in John chapter 6. Does anyone have their Bible and would be willing to read something for us? It's John chapter 6, verses 53 and 54. I'd love to have someone read that. All right, so Carson's got it. Yep. Uh, 6, 53, and 54. Yeah. So Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in him. You have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Okay, so Jesus is sitting there talking to his his disciples, talking to a group of people, saying, hey, I want you to eat my flesh and drink my blood. If we interpret that, as literal, we start to formulate the idea that Jesus wants us to be cannibals. And so there are some issues we run into when we interpret all of Scripture as literal, especially when the biblical author, or in this case, the biblical speaker, Jesus, was using some form of metaphor. We can't interpret a metaphor as something literal or else it causes an issue and causes us to have some strange ideas of what uh, the biblical text is actually saying. But on the flip side... We shouldn't interpret everything as metaphorical either. So there's also a problem with reading the Bible as only metaphor, and that is that we miss out on basic facts. So if we read all literal, we're missing out on deep truths. If we read all metaphorical, we're missing out on basic facts. So uh, can someone else read John chapter 6, verse 59? Just a few verses after what Carson just read, where Jesus is talking about eating his, his flesh and drinking his blood. John chapter 6, verse 59. All right. You guys hear that one? John says, Jesus said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. So if I read that straightforward basic fact of like, hey, this is where Jesus was, this is who was doing the action, John's just saying a very basic fact, but if I start to think, well, what does he mean by the synagogue? Was he going to the Jews? What? And, it, and if I start to create uh, or search for deep symbolic meaning in a, a straightforward basic fact, then I miss out on basic facts in Scripture, and that's equally dangerous to our interpretation of, of Scripture. So there's a third option that I think is preferable to 
uh, reading all metaphorically or all literally. And I think the third option is reading literately. Uh, and I hadn't even heard that sort of language put on that until Sam came up with uh, some of the content for this class and he talked about the idea of reading literally. And I really like that, uh, that language. So to read literally, we want to be people who can look at the Bible and look at a biblical text and understand it for what it actually means. We want to read it and understand what it means. We want to interpret metaphorically when necessary, and we want to interpret literally when necessary, but in all cases, we want to interpret it literally. We want to be people who are uh, understanding what it actually means, what the author is actually trying to say. And I think uh, an important key is aiming to understand the aim. And so aim... It's a concept. It stands for under or uh, the author's intended meaning. So our goal in reading scripture or interpreting scripture is to understand the author's intended meaning. Because when, when we understand, and you guys were kind of talking about this earlier, that one of the fears that we have, and it's a fear that I have when I read scripture, is like, well, does this actually apply to to me? Does this apply to my life? Because he's talking to these people. An important thing is to step back into the world the author was writing into and try to grasp what the text meant to those people. What is the author intending to say? What's their intended meaning? And when I can understand the intended meaning for those people in a specific time and in a specific situation, I can understand the timeless truth, the underlying principle that then can be brought into modern day today and then applied to my, to my life. But I can't just always look at a text and take it at face value and apply it directly to my life or else you run into some, some weird things there. You go to Leviticus and you read about, hey, you shouldn't like, combine two fabrics or cook a, a goat in its mother's milk. You've got some weird, strange laws that if I just take those as what they're saying there without looking for the underlying principle, then I'm, I'm doing a lot of weird things that God doesn't necessarily desire for us to do in, in our time and in our situations. Uh, so we want to understand the author's intended meaning. And I think that moves us into this next sort of thing that we need to wrestle with, that every time we approach God's word, we have to go through something called the interpretive journey. And there are a million different ways of framing this up. This is just one that I appreciate. It's one that I learned when I was in college and I, I felt like was helpful uh, to me as I uh, study God's word and strive to, to understand the author's intended meaning and then apply it to my life today. But Every time that we read scripture, our goal is to go back to the original uh, situation, the original time, understand what the text meant for those people so that we can apply the timeless truth to our lives today. So if you look up here on the far left side, step number one is grasping the text in their town. There's five steps in this interpretive journey. So the goal of step number one is to understand what the the biblical author was saying to the, te uh, to the people receiving uh, God's word originally, the original audience, the, the meaning that the author intended to communicate to the original audience. And so I'll go through each one of these five steps, and we'll kind of breeze through these because we're really going to hone in or home in on uh, that first step, uh, grasping the text in their town. So that's the first step, grasp the text in their town. And I'm going to give you guys uh, one key question to ask for each one of these steps and for this first step, grasping the text in their town, the key question we want to ask as we read God's word is, what did the text mean to the biblical audience? What did the text mean to the biblical audience? And we'll spend a lot of time there this morning. 
but continuing on that journey, you get to step number two, which is measure the width of the river to cross. I'll give you guys a second to write some of that stuff down. Measure the width of the river to cross. And the key question we're asking in step number two of this interpretive journey is what are the differences between the biblical audience and us? What are the differences between the biblical audience and us? And so if you look at the map, you see they've got this river flowing between these two towns. And so on the far left, you've got the original uh, situation uh, of the, the biblical recipients, the people who are receiving uh, Paul's letters, the people who uh, different books of the Old Testament were being writ- written to. Uh, that's the world they're living in. But if you look to the far right of the screen, you see step number five. That's our town. That's our world that we live in today. And the goal of interpretation and the goal of reading God's word is to figure out how do we get the truth from their world to our world today? How do we apply what we see in their world to to our world today? And so we have to go through this journey. And the the first step, grasp the text in their town, we've then got the second step of measuring the, the width of the river to cross. And really the goal is to see what are the major differences between us and the original recipients of whatever biblical text that we're we're reading. And so they list some of them there. Culture, language, the Bible. No part of the Bible was written in English originally. And so as we think about those sorts of things, we have to recognize there are some obstacles uh, in interpretation or understanding the author's intended meaning that we have to be aware of. So culture, very different cultural situations. The Bible was written in a different language. It's a different time. They didn't have cars or things like that. So when, when uh, a gospel writer says that Jesus then went to Jerusalem or something, he went up to, Jeru- to Jerusalem, he didn't go in a car. And so we have to be aware of the sorts of differences between us and the original audience. And you've got situation. Uh, so a lot of Paul's letters are uh, written into specific situations that we have to be aware of because sometimes the situation is very different than it is for us. So like the letter of First uh, Corinthians, Paul is writing to a really screwed up church where there, a bunch of people are sleeping with people that they're not to be, to be sleeping with. And so we might be confused why Paul is harping on certain things, but it's because he's writing into a specific situation. So we have to be aware of these different obstacles. Another one you might want to add in there is covenant. Uh, there's different uh, ways that God relates to his people throughout different periods of time. And so if you're reading uh, the book of Exodus, or you're reading the book of Leviticus, or anything in the Old Testament, those people are relating to God through the Old Covenant, a different system of laws, a different way that they have to uh, interact with God, but we're not under the Old Covenant anymore. So sometimes we'll see Old Testament laws that we don't necessarily have to follow, that we're free from because we relate to God through a specific leader, not a specific set of laws. We relate to God through Jesus. And so we have to be aware of the river of differences, and we have to ask the question, what are the differences between the biblical audience and us? The next three steps we'll go through quickly. Uh, it's cross the principalizing bridge, and the question there, the question we've got to ask is, what is the underlying theological principle in this text? What is the underlying theological principle in this text? And that's really what allows us to move from the biblical text and the author's intended meaning 
the theological principle in this text. Or you could even say timeless truth. That's a catchier way of saying it. What's the timeless truth in this text? That's what allows us to move from uh, the author's intended meaning to an ancient group of people to applying God's word to our lives today. What's the timeless truth there? What is true for those people that is also true for us today? And what's true for uh, people in the 1500s living in China that is also true for us today? And people who uh, were slaves in early America, what would be true for every single person in every single situation? What is the timeless universal truth in this text that could apply to anyone at any place at any time? So what's the timeless truth in this text? The next step is to consult the biblical map. They've got that cute little map right there. Uh, And you get across the bridge. You've got your timeless truth as you're reading through God's word. Once you have this idea, this principle, you have to make sure your principle that you've come up with holds up against the rest of scripture or else your principle is wrong. If you come up with something as you're reading God's word, if you read a, a verse or a passage and think, I think this says that God is this, or that I was created to do this, and you come up with this sort of thing that you assume to be a timeless truth or an underlying theological principle, if you then hold that up against everything else you know about Scripture and everything else God has revealed through Scripture, and they don't align, you assume that your truth that you've come up with is incorrect and that you've interpreted something incorrectly, and you need to go back to the first three steps and rework some of those until everything until this timeless truth that you have matches up with the rest of scripture. So that's what the question is for that. How does our timeless truth fit with the rest of the Bible? Uh, How does our timeless truth fit with the rest of the Bible? And then this final step is to grasp the text in our town, and that's really what we're striving to do each time that we open up God's word. It's not just about learning information about the past. That's good, and that's really helpful. But we want to learn the information about the past and about these ancient situations and these ancient people so that we can apply God's word and God's truth to our lives today. And so that's the goal of that final step, grasp the text in their town. And the question you ask is, what, uh, how should we apply this to our lives today? How should we apply this to our lives today? And so that is a really uh, rushed and hurried overview of the interpretive journey. Uh, and again, there are a, a million different ways you can go about doing that and a million ways you can uh, frame that up. And we can talk more about that if you want, but um, that's just kind of an overview of it. And we're going to hang out right in that first step of grasping the text in their town, understanding the author's intended meaning today, because that is the bulkiest of all the steps. It requires a lot of attention and uh, a lot of work a lot of times. So grasping the text in their town, uh, a big thing that we're going to talk about next week is understanding the context of a passage. In order to, uh, to grasp the text in their town, in the original uh, biblical audience's town, we have to understand the context of the passage and the context of history, everything that's going on uh, that is playing into this text. We have to understand context. Uh, We're gonna talk about that a lot next week, but this week, I wanna talk about one of the most broad forms of context in scripture, which is genre. Uh, So scriptural, literary genre. We've got to understand genre in order to understand uh, the meaning of a text. So this is where I need your guys' help. 
I need you to throw out some movie genres. Like as you're scrolling through Netflix, what are different categories of movies that you might see? And I'm going to write these on the board. Documentary, that's good. Okay. Documentary, sci-fi, drama, that's good. What else? Horror and thriller, should I separate them? I think we should. Thriller, comedy, yeah. Ah, romance, that's good. There was, an, there was one I just missed, right? Thriller, comedy, romance, action, that's good. Yeah, it's its own one. <laughs> I'm not going to write that. Uh, so now think about, uh, I want you to think about the phrase, you're killing me, and then run that through each one of these. I think that phrase would mean something a little bit different in each one of these, uh, these categories, each one of these movie genres, right? So if, if I'm watching a horror movie and a character says, you're killing me, what's probably happening? Someone's, lit yeah, someone's being stabbed or something. Uh, in a comedy, you're, you're, you're killing me. Someone's cracking you up. Uh, what about, what else are we missing here? Ooh, like a sports movie, if someone's like, dude, you're, you're killing me. Like if someone's destroying them in a, a sports game, someone's killing them. Or in a, a drama, someone's got a lot of relational conflict and they're, they're just like at the end of the, their rope and they say, babe, you're, you're killing me. Like I can't do this anymore. Like that sort of thing. Each one of those genres would change the way that we interpret a phrase like, like that. And I think it's the same way with uh, biblical genres. When we read a passage, it can be really confusing if we're interpreting it as though it is a certain kind of genre when it's, it's really nice. So the category of scripture that we're reading, the genre that we're reading, will impact the way we read the text, or at least should impact the way we read the text uh, quite a bit. So uh, now we're going to do the same thing, but for Bible genres. Throw out some genres that you think might be in the Bible that would comp uh, comprise some of uh, the categories that we use in scripture. History, yeah. I, his, yeah, I'll, I'll write it there. I'm going to put narrative with that too. What else? Yep. Prophecy. Poetry. What else? Letters, yeah. Comedy, right? Thriller. Anything else? What'd you say? Apocalypse, yeah. I hope so. Anything else? There's a lot of different subgenres and, and things of that nature, too. There, there's long lists for each one of these, and that's okay, but I think that's a good list to, to work with that in Scripture, we see different categories, different ways through which we communicate. There's a different tone to each one of these and different uh, literary devices and ways of communicating through each one of these genres, just like there is uh, or are in uh, different genres in movies or TV shows. So let's talk about some of these genres uh, and the different, and you've got your slide up there too. So with like history and narrative, uh, that's basically what it sounds like. A narrative genre, when we find that in scripture, 
It's generally a story about historical events. Uh, and if you're reading a, a narrative, it's probably also pretty action-packed because it's unraveling a story. Uh, and we're going to talk more about uh, narrative and a couple other of these genres in more depth to give you just some handlebars of how to interpret those as you're reading through them. So, uh, but we'll do that in a little bit. So narrative, you're going to see that in Genesis through Esther. Uh, a huge chunk of the Old Testament telling stories of God's faithfulness to his people, God's work through uh, the people of Israel. So we see that in a lot of the Old Testament, parts of Job and the prophets. So not all of the prophets are just uh, prophecies. Sometimes it's explaining what Jeremiah did. Sometimes it's explaining where Ezekiel went with God and different things like that. So that's narrative. Uh, And that's where it can get a little confusing too because a biblical book can be composed of multiple different genres. So it can change throughout the book, uh, which is is pretty interesting, but it it keeps us awake. It keeps us alert as we're reading through. Uh, We also see it in the New Testament uh, in Matthew through Acts. And then you might see it in parts of letters where Paul is explaining what Peter did or something like that. So you can see little chunks of narrative uh, in lots of different places. Then we've got poetry, and you guys got that one. So poetry uh, is pretty different uh, than narrative. It's meant to be an expression of emotion, not necessarily an example of behavior. So sometimes David will say stuff that seems like, did you just say you want you want God to throw some people against rocks and like kill 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 all your enemies and stuff? Uh, David is expressing emotion to God, and it's an example of how we can interact with God. But it's not necessarily saying that we should always be exactly like the person writing writing the the poem. Um, and then poetry also uses lots of imagery and lots of metaphor uh, and literary devices. And we see poetry in Psalms and uh, Song of Songs. You see it, again, scattered throughout other places. So you would see in Genesis, Adam has a poem about Eve. And you see Moses kind of have this big song that he writes after God uh, leads them through the Red Sea. Uh, and then we've got wisdom literature. I didn't write that one down. Wisdom literature. Similar to uh, poetry, you find it uh, linked with poetry a lot of times in scripture. But wisdom literature, you find that in like Proverbs or Ecclesiastes or Job. Uh, And it is different because it is sort of like um, the author is attempting to give us general statements of truth, not necessarily always universal truth. And that sounds a little bit heretical to say, well, this isn't always true. But what I mean by that is, you'll see places in Proverbs where Solomon will say something like, to the effect of, well, if you live a righteous life, you'll be blessed and good things will happen to you. And generally, that's a general statement of truth. But then we also see in another form of wisdom literature in Job that Job is a really righteous guy who, who lives a godly life, but terrible things happen to him. And so we see the two extremes. Uh, and wisdom literature is attempting to communicate general godly truth, general godly wisdom Uh, to the people who are reading it. Um, So that's wisdom literature. Uh, Then we've got prophecy. I think prophecy is, uh, makes me uncomfortable a lot of times. And I I bet it makes a lot of us uncomfortable when we run into it. Like when we open up something in the Old Testament and it's just got, it's saying, well, I saw this angel that had a billion eyes and it was like three wheels. And there's all these strange images that we don't understand how to uh, interpret it can be a little bit intimidating, um, but that's prophecy. And I don't know that I have a solution for you on all of these things, but prophecy, we see that in Isaiah through Malachi. Um, 
which are the major and minor prophets. So prophecy, one thing to keep in mind with prophecy is that it's not always a prediction of the future. And I think a lot of times we assume that prophecy is just saying like, hey, God's going to come and destroy everybody, or hey, God, uh, God's going to come back and do all these amazing things. We think it's always talking about the future, but prophecy in general is just a declaration of God's truth. And sometimes that includes talking about the future, but a lot of times it's talking about the past, and most often it's talking about what's going on right now and what God is saying about it and how God feels about it. Uh, And because it's communicating God's feelings and God's emotions, it uses a lot of emotional language. It uses a lot of symbolism, Uh, because the messages from God are very emotional. Um, We've also got gospel, and I would say that that is a subgenre of narrative. Uh, Gospel is essentially the same thing as narrative. It's a story that has a a plot. It's got uh, conflict. It's got solution. But gospels and gospel writers have a specific goal or purpose in writing their narratives, as do the Old Testament uh, authors of narrative, but gospels specifically are unique because they're attempting to convey a message about Jesus's identity and who Jesus is. So we look at the gospel of John. John is not necessarily a chronological book that's saying Jesus was born and then he did this, 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 and this. It's, it's kind of, it jumps around. It's a little bit weird because John's goal isn't necessarily to tell us everything that Jesus ever did. He, he actually says at one point in his book, hey, if I were If I were to try and do that, it would fill up a a million books. I couldn't do that. It would fill up all the books in the world. Nothing could contain what I would have to write if I had to write about everything Jesus did. And so that's not John's goal. John's goal is to show us that Jesus is God and show us more of Jesus' identity. So gospel is narrative, but with the specific intention of uh, revealing part of who Jesus is. Uh, Then I would say the one we're the most familiar with and comfortable with is letter. And so you guys got that one. You you know that one. Uh, And letter is essentially... A letter. It's a, a letter written from uh, Paul or an apostle of Jesus or a, a close uh, associate of Jesus to a group of people, sometimes an individual uh, person. And a lot of times a letter is theological truth uh, mixed with or followed by practical application. And that's why it's so easy for us because it's like, hey, here's something true about you or true about God, and here's what you should do about it. And so that's why we're comfortable with letters, and that's why we love reading them. Uh, And then apocalypse or apocalyptic literature, you guys got that? Uh, And that is really just communicating uh, about a sort of massive event uh, that's going to happen, like the Babylonian exile or the birth of the Messiah or the return of Jesus. Um, And it's probably the strangest genre for us because it uses a lot of metaphor uh, and the author is trying to evoke this sort of emotional response about this impending Uh, event. Like he wants us to praise God because of what's happened or going to happen, or he wants us to repent because of what's going to happen. Uh, And so they're trying to evoke this response. And then another subgenre would be like parable. Uh, And someone mentioned that earlier that, well, we can't interpret all of Jesus's teachings as literal. And a parable would be an example of that, where it's a fictional story illustration that Jesus has created uh, to communicate a point. Um, But now that we've run through some of those genres, I want to do uh, just a real easy, simple exercise just to help us grasp uh, the genre uh, idea and how we can determine genre as we're reading through Scripture. So I'm going to read a short passage, and then I want someone just to uh, throw out when I'm done uh, what what they think it is genre-wise. So the first one is 1 Samuel 17, 48. 
Uh, And it says, as the Philistines moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead, and the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. What do you guys think, which genre does that fall into? Yeah, it's a, a narrative, and you see it telling us David did this, he moved to this location, and he was performing certain actions. There's conflict there, and we're seeing that. Uh, mm, yeah, I think I already wrote the, I was thinking maybe I should not tell you the Bible book, because that makes it easier, but that's okay. You guys are going to get it anyway, because you're too smart. All right, the next one is Psalm 46, verses 1 through 3, uh, and listen to some of the language here, and you can hear the genre coming through. Uh, it says, God is our refuge and our strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake at their surging. What genre do we think that is? Poetry, yeah. Yeah, and, and you hear it using some of that, that metaphor, that imagery, talking about mountains falling into the heart of the sea. That's not a literal event that David is talking about. He's using metaphor to communicate an emotion that he's feeling. It feels like everything else is falling apart around us. When it feels like the mountains are falling into the heart of the sea, I can still trust God. We don't have to be afraid because God is with us. He's our refuge and our strength. Uh, And then last, we're going to do Revelation 4, verses 2 through 6. And you can hear some of this uh, with the imagery and the symbols here. Uh, It says, At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had an appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their head. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing, and these were the spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. What genre do we think that is? Anyone have a guess? Apocalyptic, yeah. And, and apocalyptic literature is similar to prophecy and poetry because it uses those, those big images, those big metaphors. But in this case, in Revelation, they're, they're talking about this big cataclysmic event that's coming in the future. John's in heaven and he's saying, man, he's, he's writing to a group of people, a, per, a group of persecuted Christians who are being mistreated by, by Rome. And he's saying, guys, hold on a little bit longer because Jesus is coming back Soon, Jesus is going to come back and, and he's painting a picture for these persecuted Christians of this powerful, majestic Jesus who sits in heaven and rules in heaven and sits on a throne. And, and, and it's this amazing picture for these persecuted uh, Christians. And so as you're interpreting apocalyptic literature like Revelation, the goal is to not get caught up in the weeds trying to figure out what every little symbol uh, means, but to allow it to evoke an emotional response in you to realize the, the overall message that's being communicated there. Uh, so now I want to quickly give you guys just a couple keys for interpreting three of those primary genres that I think we bump into a lot. So narrative, letters, and poetry. Uh, so that as we're, as like this week, as we're reading our Bibles, that this comes a little bit uh, more easily to you guys. So uh, reading narrative, uh, the keys for interpreting narrative. Um, And so most of these rules would apply to the Old Testament narrative, the Gospels, and Acts. Uh, First is pay attention to the plot. Pay attention to the plot. 
So with narrative, just like uh, any story, there is setting, there is conflict, there uh, is rising action, falling action, and solution. So pay attention to the plot because a lot of times we'll see uh, those big timeless truths, those theological principles are found in the solution. Like when the author is leading us on this, this journey through a story, he's doing it to show us like the solution. Hey, this is something that's deeply true that also applies to us today. So pay attention to plot. Uh, the second key would be pay attention to the characters. Uh, when you're looking at an Old Testament narrative uh, or, or a New Testament narrative, you will see a lot of characters because it's a story, and that makes sense. Pay attention to the characters because sometimes those characters are being used as positive examples or negative examples. Sometimes the author is uh, putting two characters up against each other to contrast them. So he, we see this a lot of times with um, like David and Saul. So the, the author of 1 Samuel paints Saul in a certain light and then paints David in a certain light, or even David individually. Sometimes the author is going to paint David in a certain light that we should imitate him. Uh, so like when he defeats Goliath, we're, we're motivated by that. The author wants us to see David's example of faith and confidence in God's power and then imitate that. But when David sleeps with Bathsheba and like has her husband killed, that is a, a different story. And David's painted it in a different light. And he's, he's shown to be like someone that we shouldn't imitate in this specific situation. So pay attention to the characters and ask yourself, should I be imitating this character's example in this passage? Uh, and then pay attention to dialogue is the third key there. Pay attention to dialogue. Uh, and again, kind of like the solution of a story, uh, the main idea of a passage a lot of times is found in the dialogue, the conversation between two characters. Uh, so pay attention to dialogue. Uh, a letter. This is the really common genre, I think, when we're reading through Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, any of those letters in the New Testament. Uh, that's kind of what we're reading. So for interpreting letters, Important keys, remember the situation. Remember the situation. Uh, letters are generally being written to a church who is experiencing a certain situation, a certain conflict. Uh, some churches are experiencing conflict, and when you read the letter, you sense the author addressing that conflict specifically. And so be aware of the situation because that impacts the way that we interpret. Um, remember the audience would be that second key. Uh, most of the New Testament letters were uh, meant to be read aloud again and again to specific congregations. But what's ironic is that we most often read them silently by ourselves, like in our closet or something. Uh, and so keeping in mind that a lot of these letters are meant to be corporate. They're, they're meant to be applied to the church as a whole, not to individuals. So like uh, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says, who do you think, or he says, I think I thank my God every time I remember you. And so when he says you, who do you think he's talking to? If he's writing uh, the book of Philippians. Yeah, he's, he's talking to the church in Philippi, a group of people. He's not talking to one specific person necessarily, and he's definitely not talking individually to Grant in the 21st century. He's talking to a group of ancient people, so we have to keep that in mind and remember that maybe this text is meant to be applied in a, a corporate setting, in the church as a whole, while there's also a dual individual application of it as well sometimes. Um, and then remember the flow would be that third one. Remember the flow, and we'll talk more about that next week, but it is uh, essential that we 
uh, read and interpret individual verses in light of the author's overall flow of thought. Um, yeah, and then poetry. Poetry is one of the most interesting ones, and you can be really uncomfortable with it sometimes if you're uncomfortable with like not non-literal statements. And sometimes I'm I'm confused by it because it isn't uh, super cut and dry. Uh, but feel the emotion. That's the first key there. Feel the emotion. So poetry communicates a message less like an email and more like uh, a painting. So a painting still communicates a message, but it's not going to be uh, as clear as what an email is. So if you read Song of Songs or Song of Solomon, it's not going to sound like a, a super clear, straightforward email, like, I find my wife rather attractive because she has the three major components of an attractive woman. She has healthy eyes, long hair, and the correct number of teeth. It's not going to talk in that nature because that'd be weird, I think. But it's going to say, behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost its young. Um, and that's also a weird way of communicating, so I wouldn't advise doing that. <laughs> but when we're interpreting that, poetry, when we're reading poetry, we have to feel the emotion, allow ourselves to be swept up in what the author is trying to show us through emotion. Uh, and then that second step for poetry is follow the literary devices. And this is where poetry can be so complicated. Uh, follow the literary devices. It's complicated uh, because we don't use all the same literary devices that biblical authors did uh, because our culture has changed and our language has changed. We use some of the same ones, like, like metaphor. I might say, uh, Christy is a ray of sunshine. I'm saying something about her personality by using a metaphor. She's not literally a ray of sunshine, but metaphorically, I think she is because she brightens up a room, uh, and I'm using metaphor to speak. They did that too, but they've got a lot more than just metaphor or simile, and some of those things can be confusing for us. So I'll give you a couple examples here uh, of... Um, the literary devices. So uh, one literary device is metaphor and uh, simile. And I think I've got this on a slide somewhere that you guys can, can write these down. Uh, so metaphor and simile, pretty common. It'd be like, God is my rock. Um, so a statement about who God is uh, using metaphor. Then there's hyperbole, which is like an exaggeration of, of fact. Uh, so the psalmist might write, my tears have been my food day and night. He's not literally saying that he's only eaten his tears, but that he's very, very sad. So my tears have been my food day and night. He's exaggerating. That's hyperbole. Um, and then we've got parallelism, which is kind of a line of poetry that is parallel to another line of poetry that either contrasts it or adds to it, uh, it develops the idea there. So we see that when, when the psalmist says, the Lord watches over the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. There's kind of parallel lines. The Lord watches over the righteous, but then let me parallel that by saying, but the way of the, the wicked leads to destruction. And then you've got personification. Uh, an example of that is burst into song, you mountains, you forests, and all you trees. It's giving human attributes to inanimate objects. We'll see that a lot of times in poetry to evoke this emotional response uh, in, in the reader. Um, and then you've got anthropomorphism, which is a fun word to say. Uh, and that is giving God human features or attributes. So an example of that would be 
incline your ear to me. Uh, The psalmist might say something like that. God, I want you to listen to me. Incline your ear to me. Does God have human ears? I don't know, but we give him these these attributes of of humans to make us more comfortable to help us understand what we're we're asking God to do out of uh, emotion. Um, What to do here? Okay, so those are the literary devices that we um, have to be aware of as we interpret uh, poetry. Um, And I think what I'm going to do is give you two relieving reminders about reading the Bible and interpreting, and then let you guys do homework uh, throughout this week. Uh, Two relieving reminders. Josh, there's a slide with two relieving reminders on it um, that I want to share with you guys uh, as we finish up today. Uh, The first relieving reminder is that the Bible is not a code to be cracked. The Bible is not a code to be cracked. Uh, Because this whole interpretation process can seem like uh, a pretty complicated ordeal. Uh, It can be a little bit uh, burdensome and um, discouraging, I think, or maybe disheartening. Uh, But it's important to remember that God's not trying to keep us at an arm's length. It's not like he's coded the Bible somehow and we've got to be Bible scholars or geniuses to figure it out. God wants to be known by his people. He wants to be known by you. And so as you're reading your Bible this week and and throughout your life, keep in mind that God's not trying to hide himself from you in his word. Um, If God wants his message to be communicated, his truth to be known, He'll make it known. And the best tool for interpretation is not any of the stuff that I've told you today. It's, it's the Holy Spirit. And so if the Holy Spirit's living in you, he will allow his truth to be heard uh, through God's word. Um, and the Bible is not a code to be cracked. So don't be discouraged as you're um, reading your Bible. Um, but it is our job to be as faithful as we can with what God has given us. So we want to interpret faithfully, but also know that God wants to be known and he will make himself known. Uh, and then the second encouraging reminder that I want to leave you with is we don't have to interpret alone. Uh, we don't interpret the Bible in isolation. So we don't have to interpret alone. That's the encouraging reminder. Because this is such a, a crazy process, especially the first step in that interpretive journey, we can feel like we have to know everything about the Bible. But I don't speak Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic. I don't speak the, the biblical languages but I know that other people do, and other people have written books that can help me with that. So if I don't have what it takes to interpret and understand the Bible or the author's intended meaning, I can lean on other people who have skills in that area. So there are commentaries and uh, study Bibles that I can lean on. Other people, there there might be people on staff at Southeast who uh, know God's word well and are able to help you interpret certain passages. So don't interpret alone. Uh, And that's important with poetry too. Uh, if you're uncomfortable with emotion and you want everything to be literal and cut and dry, you might want to lean on someone who can help you understand and capture and grasp what someone's communicating through a poet, uh, poetic image or something of that nature. So don't interpret alone. Uh, we've got homework for you guys on those sheets. It's going to be, uh, I'm kind of excited for it because it's really just interpret, uh, read that passage, Matthew 8, 18 verse 20. It's one verse and then try and figure out what the genre is of that verse. You might need to zoom out to, to look at that from a more broad perspective. Yep. Okay. All right. Josh is going to send out the slides on Monday. Um, and then you want to measure the width of the river to cross there. 
come up with some obstacles that might make it difficult for us to understand the author's intended meaning uh, for that passage. Uh, and you might want to look back at uh, the interpretive journey map. That could help you with that. So you're going to do that homework, and then next week we're going to kind of follow up on that and continue working through that Matthew 18, 20 uh, passage to understand it more. But that's all we've got for you today. It was a lot. I'm sorry for that. But I'm glad uh, that we get to do this and we get to understand God's word more. So have a good week.